Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 600 of them now, and if this is, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in several different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there is a PayPal button on every page of the website. And there's also a page about other ways to donate. My guest today is Jeff Vanderkloot. I'm going to read parts of his bio and let him just elaborate on the rest. I first met Jeff when he was talking with the board members and advisors of the Association for Spiritual Integrity, of which I'm one of the founders and of which he's a member. And I liked him immediately. He was in Crestone, Colorado at that time, and I assumed he he lived there. But since then, he's been moving around, and he's now in the, in the United Kingdom. And uh, it seems, now that I've gotten to know him better, that he's rather itinerant and has been for a long time, just bopping around the world, doing interesting things. So we'll hear about that today. In addition to being a member of the ASI, Jeff is a co-founder of Enlightening Journeys and Expeditions, which he can tell us more about, and Sourcing the Way. And he's a member of the Evolutionary Leaders Council, the Global Compassion Council of Charter for Compassion International, and he serves on the board of directors for Alliance for the Earth, Garden of Light, and the Source of Synergy Foundation. So welcome, Jeff. Good to have you here. Thank you, Rick. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Yeah. And everyone who's watching or will be watching the recording. Good. As I understand it, you just finished a one-month retreat, kind of a solo retreat there in, in the UK. In listening to quite a few hours of your various interviews and, and talks that you've given, I uh, got the impression that your first big aha spiritual experience was when you were a, a student of physics and mathematics at the university, some university, and you were in a classroom and you were thinking about quarks and different kinds of quarks, and all of a sudden, you well, you go ahead and describe the experience, if you feel like that's a good place to start. Well, it is a good place to start, and then I'll rewind even further to some incidences in childhood that just came to me that might be relevant as well. So, let's see. Yes, well, this was 2002. I think it was January 2002, and I um, had graduated from college by that point, but I was still quite fond of physics and math. I had a math major and studied quite a lot of physics until... Interestingly, the people around me started to seem unhappy and really stressed. And somehow I knew, well, maybe this, this isn't the path for me. But the aha was that you know, one Saturday afternoon at work where there was a big whiteboard, and that's really important because I like to doodle and, and write equations and try to solve them or what have you. Um, I was sitting and in a kind of meditation reflecting on elementary particles and quarks in particular, and I was thinking about how they could actually be the same particle or the same type of particle expressing differently in a higher dimensional space. So from our point of view, from 
and within three dimensions, we would see the particle one way, um, but it could be rotated in higher dimensions so that it would show up in multiple ways from multiple angles, if you will, and we would call those perspectives on the same thing, different types of particles. And when that insight landed, I ha had the experience of a huge energy rising, actually shooting up my spine very quickly and going all the way to the top of my head. And then I was essentially lifted out of my chair by this force and moved around the room, really danced around the room because I found myself flowing in what might now be called conscious movement. But I had no idea what was going on. I'd never heard the word Kundalini. I'd never heard about conscious movement. The word consciousness never referred to the deep stuff that we might speak about today. Um, I had no spiritual community, but something in me said, this is good. It feels good, flow with it, let it do what it will. So then I'm at the whiteboard, essentially painting equations. And so it was a very different experience of physics. I knew, I knew because it felt so good and there was so much power that I must be onto something. This was a good direction to explore. And for the next few years, I did continue to dabble. And I have to say that it was really a kind of dabbling in physics because the answers I was looking for uh, were not to be found within the current context, the current understandings, which are more materialist in, in the main. Uh, I was interested in what is just over the horizon of what we know today. And so it was much more of a metaphysical investigation that uh, unfolded in, in the following years. Now, to rewind to earlier times, I was probably about 12. And at that time, I had a paper out. And I was delivering papers and walking up a long hill. And a funny thing happened, which is when I looked up at the clouds that were moving in one direction, there was one cloud, a much smaller cloud, moving in the opposite direction, following me up the hill, much lower in altitude. And when I got to the top of the hill and threw the paper uh, in the yard, or you know, hopefully it landed well, I saw that this cloud was now vertically oriented as if someone was standing before me. And this was unusual. Again, I wasn't afraid. I think I was born with uh, a knowing when things are good or you know, basically a good thing. So I was curious. And then when I turned around and went down the hill, this cloud shot relatively quickly in the normal direction with the other clouds. So what to make of that? It's definitely stayed with me. I feel like I've had visitations. I've had help along the way, along the spiritual journey, a lot of protection uh, from my own unconsciousness at various times. So I'm really grateful for all of that. Of course, there, there have been many other experiences. Coming back now to the Kundalini activation, which is what I'm sure it was. Uh, it wasn't a spiritual awakening per se. I would say, though, that it opened something in me. It opened up this capacity to feel the alignment of different opportunities, ideas, sort of like a tuning fork for truth. And at first, there was a lot of distortion in, in this system, in this body-mind system. So there was quite a bit of, um, of, uh, of muck to overcome. But over time, as I became clearer and clearer, this tuning fork became more and more precise. And now... It's how I live my life. And that has led to uh, a lot of spiritual insight. In fact, hundreds of times per day, when I hear something or I think or some thought arises or whatever it might be, somebody says something to me, it might be spiritual in nature, I'm immediately calibrating. How true is this? How deeply true is it? Uh, because I'm looking for what has roots in the deepest truth. And I found that by doing so, um, life flows and unfolds in a very graceful way by aligning myself with the flow of life and with truth and being in service to that and making decisions on the basis of what is deeply true. 
that um, that has led to miracles in some cases, definitely a lot of healing, uh, and the journey continues. Like you would say, we're on a journey. Yeah. Um, I used to be a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, as you know, and uh, one of his favorite phrases was Ritambara Pragya, which is actually from the Yoga Sutras, and it's it means that level of intellect which knows only truth. And he said if you can function from that level, whatever you want to know or whatever you do know is aligned with truth. There was some course in which people were talking about all these flashy experiences they were having, and he said, I'm not so interested in that. What I want to know is how much support of nature do you get in your activity? To what extent are your desires just supported and things just work out serendipitously, although I didn't use that word. So that's interesting. That's kind of the way you live. Exactly. And I've been living this way more or less since 2009, although the real acceleration kicked in in 2011 when I made a practice out of calibrating. And what emerged, I had this this download when I was driving from California to Seattle, where I realized this felt sense of yes and no in my body. So the rising energy in the spine was a very clear physiological indicator of yes. And sometime after that signal manifested, I had another signal manifest as a pressure in my left temple corresponding to a no. And the stronger the pressure, or if it's a shooting pain, in that case, it would be a strong no. So I began to really live in accordance with the yes and the no. What was the signal for the yes again? The rising energy in the spine, a kind of tingling Uh sensation, electricity in the body. So you mean like on numerous occasions, you would have either the rising energy or the pain in the temple, depending upon whether it was a yes or a no. This this became routine. More or less continuous. If I would ask a question, there'd be a spontaneous response from the body. So I knew, and this, this became the most interesting experiment in existence for somebody who is, at least in my case, interested in math and physics and science and the intersection of science and spirituality, how can we use our bodies and our our subtle energy as a way of diving more and more deeply into truth, into the the realms of spiritual liberation, ultimately? Yeah, that's really cool. Jeff Vandekloot, the human tuning fork. Did it ever fail you? Did you ever have like an energy, the energy thing and it turned out to be wrong or the pain thing and it turned out to be right? I would have to say no. Uh This would have been much, well, much earlier on this scenario that I'll describe where maybe I had an opinion or a desire and I wanted something to work out a particular way. And then I would ask for guidance to support that outcome. It doesn't work that way. What this tuning fork supports is truth. So if what I'm leaning into is aligned, then it works beautifully. If I'm out of alignment, then I will receive a correction. And even if it's not what I wanted at the time, I would say that it worked. Hmm. Have there been cases where there was something that obviously seemed like the right thing to do, but your intuition was saying, no way, you shouldn't do that. And you kind of went against the obvious, thinking Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, no way you should sell the cow for this handful of beans, but it turned out to be the right thing to do. I'm sure there are lots of examples of that. None come to mind, really. For me, an enlightened decision is one where you could say the left brain and the right brain agree. So there isn't an override. Earlier on, when I was finding my way, I'm sure there were all kinds of overrides. The most recent override of a different nature that I can think of was in 2015. I realized that was a while back, but I was uh, 
going to park in Marina, this Marina del Rey in California. So parking is scarce. And there was a space and it would have involved stopping very quickly, but safely and legally. And I didn't. Something in me was like, ah, oh, that's too much hassle. And then I probably ended up walking about a mile as a result. So that was a gentle reminder to really pay attention to the guidance in tiny situations and definitely in the larger situations. Yeah. And as we talk, I imagine you'll tell us some more stories that relate to this principle, because I've heard a number of them, like your decision to go to India just before the pandemic, your decision to leave India just before they locked the country down, stuff like that. Well, that's a perfect example. Logic would have said, don't go to India on March 5th, 2020, when the pandemic was clearly coming and people were dying in New York City. And I was just outside New York City, so it wasn't like I was unaware. But in meditation, I connected with the scenario of going to India, and I felt such a strong yes, confirmed in multiple ways. And then I asked, well, how long might I be there? I was going to co-lead a two-week journey to Rishikesh with a bunch of Norwegian yoga students. So I had committed to doing that. And the guidance I received in this intuitive way with body wisdom confirmation was that the journey would be canceled the Thursday before it was scheduled to begin and go to India anyway. It's really important. So I, I went, I went. And it was a wild experience flying through Kiev and having people in spacesuits practically board the plane and, and shoot these thermometer guns at our foreheads, which I hadn't experienced before. And then getting into India, the lines were huge and you know, it's always a process, but it was at least double the usual process. So it wasn't convenient. It wasn't what the small self would have wanted or chosen because of ease. But I trusted because I've known and I've got enough confirming evidence from experience to trust. Well, what happened was I had a mini writing retreat as I acclimated a few days before the journey. And I wrote a piece that went viral, a blog post, and maybe we'll talk about that later. And because that blog post went viral, it really changed my life. So that was a gift of India. And I was able to write there and I was able to write in a certain kind of way in that energy field. And I do find that when I'm in different places, different energy fields, my capacity shift. What I'm capable of is partly a function of the environment that I'm in. And I think it was Eckhart Tolle who said he could write on the West Coast of North America, but he could edit in the UK. It's that sort of thing. So thank you, India. Now, funnily enough, Thursday came along, Thursday morning. I'm on a Zoom call with colleagues, uh, multitasking, because something in me said, check the news headlines. And sure enough, the night before, the World Health Organization had declared it's a pandemic. And the government of India immediately announced they were closing their borders the following day, actually it was Friday. So I bought a one-way ticket, got off that Zoom call very quickly and was on my way to Australia before those borders shut down and quarantines were imposed and so on. So I've managed by listening and trusting and following through on this form of wisdom, I've managed to stay ahead of the pandemic, out of harm's way and be helpful. That's great. There's a lot of interesting things we could talk about in there, energy fields. And one question that comes to mind is, you can't fake this. Or maybe you can disagree with me, but a person might think, well, my job sucks. I think I'll quit it and become a clam digger or an artist or a rock musician or whatever they would like to be. 
And that may or may not be a good idea, especially if they have three or four kids and, you know, responsibilities and stuff. What you're doing, I think, is different than just going with one's whims in a way which could end up being disastrous. Yes. Well, what I've found from living in this way, and now I'm going to bring in the word sourcing, and I would even distinguish sourcing from intuition. It sounds like what I'm describing is living intuitively. The way I think about sourcing is going to the deepest root of wisdom and and seeking counsel at that level. So I'm not necessarily asking for my departed relatives advice, although that's fine. It's legitimate. And when I get information, I have this capacity to calibrate where it's coming from. And indeed, 2015 or so, I had this download in India of a map of layers of sentience. So I can somehow I have this ability to see where in the field of consciousness the information is coming from. And the deeper it is, the more I trust it and rely on it. So in the process of sourcing, going to the deepest place, I've discovered doing this over and over again, one becomes source, one becomes one with source, one essentially is in union with God by living in this way. And over time, the, the union with and the one with drop away and you simply are source. You are that. That's the non-duality. And so it was a curious path to get to non-duality, but I did find my way by listening to the body, living in the world, and tuning in to the flow of resonance and truth. Yeah, that's very good. In fact, that phrase I used earlier, Rittenbara Pragya, that refers to a level of intellect which resides at the junction point between absolute and relative. Sometimes the, sometimes the term a lamp at the door is used because it's like, you know, you're sitting in the doorway with that light of consciousness or whatever that kind of the illumination is bidirectional. And if you're functioning from there, then this ability to intuit correctly is spontaneous. But if you're out somewhere without that access to source, then anything goes. It, it may not, it may or may not be. Good reliable. Luck. Yeah. And I've found that if our, our heart's in the right place, uh, and speaking for myself at least, as long as I was doing my best, I was earnest and sincerely seeking the most aligned path that would be in service, because there is this impulse to serve, yeah. to serve creation and serve healing and collective awakening. Somehow life is very accommodating. And if I need the correction, I, I get the correction. If I'm off, I know quickly and the circumstances will show me. And so to be listening for the feedback, honestly, to be really honest about where one is, is so important on the spiritual path. Yeah, that's a good point. I love the point about service. I, I feel that way, too, that I want to be an instrument of the Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, you know, the St. Francis prayer. And when you're doing that, it can work both ways. I mean, when I first started this show, I was thinking of doing it at a little local radio station and getting people on the phone and interviewing them. And that wasn't getting any support whatsoever. And then eventually, with the prodding of some friends, I began to think a little bigger and, you know, get it out on the internet. That got support. So I was frustrated for a couple of months because I wanted to do this. And, and why didn't this radio station get that this would be a good idea? You know, I should do it. But obviously it wasn't a good idea to do it that way. But the idea was good, but it needed to be done a different way and in order to get mm -hmm. the support. Absolutely. Yeah, life will tell you. I sometimes call it the wisdom of circumstances. When things don't seem to be going your way, 
It doesn't mean they're going wrong. They're probably going very right. There's one point which um, I thought about as I was listening to your various talks and, and all, and that is that the idea of taking a God's eye view of things. Things can seem very unfair and arbitrary, and it's hard to believe that there is any kind of divine intelligence in the universe when we look at some of the horrible things that happen. But if you could zoom out far enough and see it from a cosmic enough perspective, then you you realize that everything in the big picture has an evolutionary agenda or trajectory. Even the earth itself will eventually be melted when the sun becomes a red giant, and that won't be so rosy for whatever life remains as that begins to happen. But if suns didn't die and explode, we wouldn't have bodies, you know? So in the big picture, all is well and wisely put. Maybe you could elaborate on that. Well, it's a both and. In the human experience, there is, at least at the current level of collective consciousness, a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we're going to outgrow this level of collective consciousness. And I believe that's happening very rapidly, thanks to and catalyzed by the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm actually quite grateful for the stimulus into the human body, the collective body of humanity to wake up and see with different eyes, ultimately, and wrestle with some very thorny challenges about the individual and the collective. You know, individual rights, collective rights seem to be opposed. But when we find the synthesis and the harmonious uh, both and, then we'll be at another level of consciousness. So, all right, we have on the one hand suffering. We have on the other hand the God's eye view in which everything is actually perfect. I was thinking about this yesterday, this notion of vibration and raising your vibration. In some ways, you could think of it as how rapidly one oscillates between the individual perspective of, you could say, the small self and the God perspective of the all. And being in both simultaneously seems to be the magic of the human experience, that we have the capacity, we have the physical and energetic architecture that allows us to have an experience on multiple levels, which we have not fully utilized clearly. So my sense is the more we can practice, whether it's sourcing or some other way of expanding one's view to encompass the whole and the evolutionary arc of the human journey and the journey of life and the journey of the universe and planets and stars that form and ultimately explode, scattering elements that create life, when we can hold all of that in our heart, then we also have a very powerful capacity to heal and support life when that is needed, as it is now. Yeah, that's very well put. If I had to define enlightenment, which is a word I don't usually like to use because it has too much of a static superlative connotation, but it would be to say just what you said, that it's the state in which the capacity to incorporate all the apparently paradoxical fields of life in one awareness has matured so that simultaneously one could, in one's experience, know that, well, nothing has ever happened. Actually, there is no universe. Also, you know, there is a universe and it's perfect just as it is. And also there is a world and it's full of problems and we need to work on them. All those three things can be lived simultaneously. And it's not a matter of oscillating back and forth between them. It's a matter of containing them all within a larger context. Yes. And so that's one reason why I 
sometimes talk about going beyond this notion of vibration and frequency, that can be a limiting idea. When we drop into the ground of our true nature, then we are all pervading. We're, we're actually all of it and omnipresent. We go beyond the notions of matter and energy and vibration to something that's very uh, deep and difficult to talk about. So how do people drop into the ground? I mean, how do you do it? You, you just did a one-month retreat, and I was wondering what you actually passed your time doing during that one month. Probably you were meditating a lot. How do you meditate? Do you feel that when you do, you drop into that ground and marinate there for a while? I mean, what's your experience in practice? Well, I would say that sourcing is meditation. So whenever I quickly listen in that way, it's meditation. It's going outside of space and time. It's going to the ground. So I have cultivated ready access to the ground as a result of going there so many times in that fashion. The one-month retreat, however, was, well, delicious and extremely powerful because for the first time ever, I'd actually cleared that much time to focus on abiding in dharmakaya, abiding in truth and being so open that some kind of larger transformational process might occur. So I went into the retreat with the intention to open as wide as possible and see what happened. Although I also knew it just came immediately when I was preparing that this would be a retreat with um, multiple levels. One being to abide as the foundation of, ex of existence, really. And another being to, uh, to serve the planetary healing process that is uh, underway and much needed. So I would meditate sitting or lying down. And for me, lying down is actually preferred. I can go to a very relaxed state without falling asleep and different strokes for different folks. Uh, sitting is also good. Walking meditations are great. I even sometimes joke about a talking meditation. <laughs> we can be in a contemplative space and state when we're engaging in a conversation such as this. I would call this meditation. All of that said, I meditated for upwards of eight hours a day in a more traditional sense. And during that time, I had some awareness, awareness of the depths, but also a bit of a a conscious process in parallel that was tracking how open, how open, how open. And I got, when I reached a certain threshold of openness, yes, here, be here, stay here, keep opening, that's fine. But this is the requisite degree of openness for, this is going to be abstract, but bear with me, in a sense for creation to turn inside out through this vessel, through this vehicle. So if you think of a, a beach ball turning itself inside out, so whereas before, we've, I'll say, if I can generalize, uh, we've been very externally oriented as a species, not all of us, but many of us. So looking for answers outside. With this turning inside out of life, what I knew would happen, and this is intuitive, I just knew, I grokked that somehow life would be able to heal itself more readily when the outside and inside change places. Now, there is no real separation between outside and inside. Uh, we've learned that, but as a way of thinking about it. So at one point in the meditation, I got, yes, this is what's happening. Life is able to heal faster, more fully, 
because of this meditation. We'll see, time will tell. And yet, after my month, when I started to re-engage with people and have sessions with friends and clients to check in on their progress over the month of August, I was actually astonished at how much spiritual evolution and how much business progress people were making. So everything seemed to be improving. And my hypothesis, so the scientist says, let's have a hypothesis and maybe we can test it, is that the more of a heart connection I had to people, the more they were somehow participating in this healing process that was occurring during the meditation. So in future uh, meditations and on future retreats, and I'm planning already to take the month of February to do something similar, I'm going to see whether it's possible to accelerate even further this deep healing within life itself so that maybe we'll actually experience the manifestations of healing in the outer, in the so-called outer world. And clearly there's work to do. So I'll stay very humble about whatever I might have accomplished. Personally or individually, I emerged from the retreat with vast clarity. um, And there was good clarity before. So... There are fruits on multiple levels, and I can highly, highly recommend. Um, but one thing to bear in mind is if you go deep and stay deep, don't be surprised if a kind of tsunami of inspiration comes your way. So the following two weeks, I was working practically 24-7 to write down and um, harvest the insights and some of the, uh, the gems from that time in silence. Hmm. It seems like you are at a stage where it's fruitful for you to do a a retreat like that, even a self-guided one. Many people, I think, might get a little loopy if they tried to spend a month just meditating eight hours a day, because it doesn't necessarily result in greater clarity. It can result in a lot of mud being stirred up, and a lot of stuff that needs to be processed. And it's often uh, advised by in spiritual traditions to not do that solo if you're at a certain stage, but later on, it might be appropriate to do it solo. Well, of course, I sourced the timing, and it was late last year when I was inspired one day to actually schedule, to put in the calendar the month of August for a retreat, and then in 2022, three months of retreat, and then in 2023, six months of retreat. Mm-hmm. So I was given eight, nine, ten months of heads up, so I had time to prepare for the system to ready itself for such a deep dive. And yeah, the deep wisdom that was telling me, you know, take that parking space also knows when it is appropriate to go on an extended solo retreat. And sometimes it's better to have a teacher guiding you in the process. I definitely can recommend that as well. Back in the day in the 70s, I was on a lot of long retreats, six weeks, six months, and you definitely needed the balance of a buddy system, regular meals and a little exercise during the day and stuff like that. And even with that, A lot of people got pretty out there, pretty kooky, unbalanced. (laughs) Grounding is really important. I have a grounding practice in the mornings and in the evenings, uh, which I do very diligently. And during the day, if I feel a little bit, oh, what might I say, uh, like I'm starting to float Mm -hmm. off the ground, uh, I know what to do. Mm -hmm. And your grounding involves what, like walking on the beach or something like that? Well, interestingly, um, in the last week or so, I've had real clarity about levels of grounding. And so there is grounding physically, earthing, walking on the earth with bare feet, that sort of thing. Very good. Then there's a level of grounding, which we could call energetic, which involves more of the subtle energy system. And I learned some excellent techniques from a gentleman named David Router in Australia. 
And he taught me a lot about how to ground my subtle energy systems and let go of what isn't me and reintegrate the parts of me that had been dissociated, for instance. And then there's a third level, which is grounding in present circumstances. So this is paying attention to the world and being attuned to what's actually possible and staying, really it's about staying present and not getting too far into the head or potential future thinking, for instance. But then interestingly, there's a little flip that happens because the fourth level, this becomes available and I would say advisable once you've got the first three is grounding in the pure potential of limitless mind because we have that capacity as well. We do have the capacity to create worlds and we need to be very grounded when we're manifesting if we would have the manifestations actually expressed or materialized. The fifth level might be my favorite, although I have a hard time with favorites, and that is uh, abiding as the foundation of existence. So being the ground itself, the ground of yes, being. The, so the ultimate we grounding. We can be grounded. <laughs> absolutely. We can be grounded in matter and we can be grounded in the absolute ground of all that is. And when we have the both and, again, that seems to be the magic of the human, then uh, we become quite capable. All right. Let's read this question. This is from Akshay in Pune, India. Do all spiritual practices like devotion, meditation, yoga, and selfless service lead to calming of one's mind so that it stops its own chatter and lets the divine energy enter and work through it? Yes, feeling into that. When we say all spiritual practices, we could probably come up with some examples that, that wouldn't work well for any individual. Right. Or but for every spiritual individual. Practice, fair enough, yes. Right. Spirituality is not one size fits all. Until maybe eventually it is, right, when we get to the ground. So if it's a good fit for you, then yes, it brings calm, it brings peace. And this might be a way of discerning whether a practice is right. Does it bring peace? And you need to stick with it a little while, because if the first time it doesn't bring peace, it could just be that it wasn't, wasn't time, it hadn't ripened, or you weren't ready. So if you stay with it for some time, whether it's a few weeks, I think I've heard it takes a few weeks, maybe a month, to form a new habit. Probably there's something similar with the spiritual practice. Try it for a month or so. See how you're doing. Do you feel more peaceful? Do you feel more connected with the divine? And if so, it's a good path. And a lot of the things he's mentioning here can be done simultaneously by one person. They can be a meditator. They can be devotional. They can be doing yoga. They can be doing selfless service. It's a multi-pronged yes. thing. In fact... I would say one empirical discovery that I've come to recognize is when we want to heal, for instance, try three things so you never know which one worked. The mind, at least the kind of reductionist mind, loves to find the exact cause, loves to understand cause and effect as a linear mechanism. It seems not to be linear in truth that the deep cause shows up as a co-arising. So often it's helpful to try several approaches simultaneously, like you're saying. Maybe it's a bit of bhakti, a bit of karma yoga, a bit of uh, raja yoga, and, and you might find that the progress is faster. Yeah. And that's in line, incidentally, with traditional Vedanta and all. They, they don't just say, only do this. They usually say, all these things have their, their value, and you can have a toolkit, yes. like a Swiss army knife that <laughs> involves a number of things. So there's several threads in our conversation that would be interesting to follow up on. One is, you know, what you experienced during your, or as a result of your retreat that you noticed 
it seemed to influence people with whom you had a deep connection. So the, the point there is that we're all interconnected at a deep level, even if we're not in communication with one another, and we're all generating an influence which ripples out and contributes to the quality of the field in which we all abide. And that, so we have like collective consciousness, you could say, at various levels, family, community, national, world. Let's play with that for a few minutes. Wonderful. Any specific question? Well, the implication is that if enough people were doing the sorts of things we're talking about here, even small percentages of them might have an influence on the entire world that many people wouldn't think possible if they didn't understand the mechanics of it. But And, and that kind of leads into another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is you made some very optimistic predictions about where the world is going and even a little bit making me a little bit incredulous, but hopeful. I mean, I hope you're right. And so I think what I just described would be part of the mechanics of that yes. coming to fruition. Yes. Well, Yogananda says in his autobiography of a yogi that whatever your extremely powerful mind believes would instantly come to pass. So the extremely powerful mind is the uncharted territory that we're invited to step into and that the pandemic is potentially pushing us into a bit more. As I said earlier, we have various conflicts occurring between various groups of people with different ideas, and we simply cannot resolve them at the level of consciousness that has been prevalent. So we'll have to rise in perspective to a new uh, view that allows us to synthesize apparently opposing viewpoints. And from this higher level of consciousness, we have higher levels of capacity to heal. And one extremely awake person can do an awful lot of good. And as you were, I believe, alluding to the Maharishi effect, uh, the square root of 1% of a population, if meditating in a coherent way, can significantly reduce uh, violence and you know, various uh, unpeaceful behaviors. And that has been measured, and there's a lot of evidence to support the truth of it. So there is a spiritual science there. And if, I don't want to give a percentage, but if some relatively small percentage of us open to the possibility, in other words, we don't have a kind of guardedness in our hearts, um, the possibility that our extremely powerful mind could heal the world very quickly, that is, that is the opportunity. And if, if, we, if we don't name it, then we're very unlikely to choose it, or life is going to push us so hard that we'll have no choice. And, and that's, not the, that's not the gentle path. Hmm. I was thinking about a uh, saying from the Gospel of Thomas, uh, if you seek, keep seeking until you find, I'm paraphrasing, and when you find, you will be disturbed. And being disturbed, you will be amazed. And then you will rule over the entirety. So we're collectively in the stage of being quite disturbed. A lot of us who are waking up, seeking the truth behind appearances, going down various rabbit holes in some cases, and you know they don't all lead to truth, but it, I guess it's good that we're collectively exploring so many places in consciousness, um, but seeking the truth, we will collectively get there. And enough of us are seeing that the world that we've created in unconsciousness isn't the world that we want to live in. So as we can see that, we become automatically more conscious. There's something in us that, that opens to a, uh, a wider space of possibility. And then as we start to make choices within that wider space of possibilities, so we're no longer operating within the very tight conditioning of particularly the Western mind, 
then we can unfold our power to heal and recreate the world. And this is where we are amazed. We amaze ourselves at what we're able to do. So I'll give you a specific example. The country of Estonia some years ago decided that they were going to clean up the trash that had been strewn all about during the, um, oh, I guess, the Soviet times. And so one weekend, everyone in Estonia went out and picked up the trash. And by golly, they did it. It was amazing. <laughs> that's great. Um, so, you know, that's a microcosm, but it's millions of people. So why not billions of people deciding that we're going to clean up the world? It might take some time, but there's definite low-hanging fruit. And we can see, ah, yes, collective action is very powerful. Let's do more. This feels good. If we're going to be addicted to anything, let's become addicted to the power we have to heal the world. And I predict that future economies, and not many years from now, will actually be thriving on the basis of restoring and regenerating nature and habitat and bringing back species and cleaning up our acts. So whether it's this decade or in the next two decades, my sense is we definitely make it through this period of great turning and tribulation. Um, I would prefer that we make it with, with less death and destruction. So I wholeheartedly invite us to, uh, to step into the more radical possibilities, even if they seem incredible. And it's good to be skeptical. So Rick, I appreciate that you were incredulous about some of what I offered. I would not say that I'm predicting the future, but everything that I write goes through the process of tuning into the resonance and the truth value. Everything is very finely calibrated. It takes me hours to write even a short article because every word, every sentence, every paragraph, and then the whole is a gestalt, gets checked for truth. And humanity has a lot of freedom, at least on certain levels. If we go to the absolute, we can... We can look at this a different way, but on the level of relative reality, humanity has a lot of freedom to choose more or less conscious paths. And we're still discovering the hard way, what doesn't work when we choose unconsciousness. But that, that is shifting. And the, the shift is going to be exponential. And I don't think any of us is, is totally comfortable predicting that in a decade, um, you know, we could be living in a world that feels a lot more like a paradise but I did take that step, and uh, I'm willing to be wrong, but I sure hope I'm right. I do, too. And when I say I'm incredulous about something, it's not in an absolute sense or an adamant sense. It's more like, well, I hope he's right, but I, I'm not going to believe it just because he said it, but maybe it could work out that way. It's it's kind of like I don't just sort of jump into believing things, nor do I ever say, no, this could not possibly be. You could pick a thousand different examples, and probably you've worked the same way. Yes. But since the 70s, I've kind of been interested in this notion that we're heading into a time where there's going to be a huge transformation, and that a lot of ancient cultures have predicted it, and they've also predicted that there's going to be a lot of turbulence as we transition into it, but most of them feel that we'll make it through that turbulence and that things will be really far better than we can imagine. And uh, and some of these predictions also do suggest that it'll all take place in a fairly small time window. It's not going to drag yes. on for a couple of centuries. People will be surprised at how quickly things shift. Well, it's because our extremely powerful mind is actually infinitely powerful. <laughs> the reason we've been mired in slow processes of evolution and transformation is we have so denied our own divinity 
what happens when we say yes to that within us, which is us, well, that's the extent to which um, we will certainly surprise ourselves, be amazed, and then, in quotes, rule over the entirety. But this isn't power over. This isn't colonialism or dictatorship. It's really knowing that the entirety of creation is is our own form, self, nature. And so there's a love that just automatically arises for, quote, our creation in that process. And that's what is also spoken of in different traditions, that when we wake up, we we see what we've created and we have great love for it. And then that love becomes further motivation and true power for um, continuing the journey in a good way. Do you think everyone has an extremely powerful mind or do you think that everyone has the potential to have an extremely powerful mind, but they're only using a fraction of that potential? Well, that's true. And it's there. The incredibly powerful mind is available to all of us. And the extent to which we're clouded or um, contracted, uh, we do limit our own capacity. And then we make decisions that are not aligned with life. And actually, any decision made from, we could say, egoic contraction is going to have externalities because that's what ego does. It says, I'm me and I'm very identified with this. And then there's everything else. And I'm optimizing for this. So, any decision made from ego has negative unintended consequences. Any decision made from real awakeness is good for the whole. And when it's good for the whole, it's good for the individuals, which brings us back to what's happening with the conflict between people who are for the vaccine and not for the vaccine. And you know, we're going to rise to a level collectively where that debate isn't happening anymore because we actually see the situation in a new way. But we're not going to get there because... The Jeff guy on Batgap said so. We're going to have to work it out as a collective conversation. And right now it's a bit uncomfortable. How are we going to work it out? Well, as the collective conversation. So millions of people expressing their points of view. I'm not here to agree with one or another, but there is a sense of the wisdom of crowds, the wisdom of the whole and it's only recently become the case that we have an internet that allows everyone to speak up in some way. And we're still learning how to do that. We're still learning how to speak up in a way that doesn't create echo chambers of division. But the technology is fundamentally empowering. And the more we practice speaking, the more we work through our stuff in the process. I get that we're in a phase now where a lot is being spoken that isn't really deeply true. But then once it's been spoken, it doesn't need to be spoken 10 million more times. And I can give an example from my personal experience about a decade ago after the global financial crisis, maybe while the GFC was still ongoing, I had this deep seated sense that the economy was going to crash. And there was part of me at that time, and this was earlier on my journey, that was ready to see the system come tumbling down. And there was a lot of distortion, therefore, because I was kind of grasping at a scenario that I wanted because it would be better for me. Again, it's the ego. So I, I latched on to narratives about the coming collapse of the economy. And I even considered buying a year or two years of provision. So if you know, I couldn't get food you know, from supermarkets, I would be okay. You know, that kind of thinking, which is happening now on a much larger scale. So I feel like I've been through the process that many people are experiencing now. Um, wrestling with the same kind of issues and in some cases the rabbit holes of what's really true and is the big system really against me and is it going to collapse and, and would it be better? And ultimately what I get is it's all life. The big system is life too. It's not perfect in the sense that we can make it better. It is perfect in the 
the zoomed out God's eye view because it's where we are. And again, we have work to do. So the big system is life and, and you are life. So you're not separate from the big system. The system is evolving and life is finding better ways. So it's better, I find, to not be against things, to not be anti anything, but to listen very, very deeply for what's mine to do. And if billions of people start to listen more deeply for what's theirs to do, at first we're going to stumble and we're going to have every kind of opinion you can imagine. But with practice, we're going to get clearer and we're going to get better and we're going to come into alignment because there's really only one capital T truth. And as we align with the capital T truth, we're going to find that a lot of the skirmishes fall away. So I'm, I'm kind of speaking a little bit elliptically because I don't want to go into the current debates, but hopefully that is clear. Well, we can use the current debates as a case in point. And I also went through a phase like you did. And in fact, I was in this little Y2K group in town that we were meeting and talking about what might happen. And somebody donated to us a huge amount of dried food. And I had boxes and boxes of this dried food in the garage. And uh, it was really detestable if you tried to eat any. <laughs> and eventually bugs got into it and we had to whole, throw the whole thing out. But the sentiment, the feeling was that big changes are afoot. And somehow or other, it might be a bumpy ride when they take place. And if you, if you think about the situation right now, there's, you mentioned the vaccine thing. That's only one example of the polarities that are ripping society apart. And I know you've talked a lot about money and wiser ways of handling our monetary systems. And there are such extreme disparities these days between rich and poor. So many people struggling and other people with billions and billions of dollars. How do we get from here to there? And there's so many industries which are destructive, which are polluting or decimating fish populations or various other things like that. How do we transition from the current situation into one in which those types of thinking and types of commerce really would not fit? They would stick out like a sore thumb. They wouldn't work in a more enlightened society. Fair enough. Well, in every destructive industry you could name, there are examples of initiatives that are seeking a new way and in some cases taking big steps. So in the mining industry, you have uh, companies like Fortescue. Fortescue is an Australian company that has committed, I think, a billion dollars to invest in renewable energy or more money. It's so some, some very significant amount. Uh, and they're, they're seeking to, to transform economies, energy, and also how they do mining. And it's going to take a while. Uh, I know people who have, for instance, MBAs in sustainability who are also in the mining industry and seeking to make the industry less destructive and find non-toxic approaches to extracting metal from rock and ways of doing so that don't scar the natural landscape. And you know, we could argue whether mining is um, an essential activity for humans, but right now we seem to need the metals and at some point, maybe we can recycle better. And it's really all of the above, actually. That's how we're going to get there. It's all of the above. Somebody very wise in the journalism industry, when it was being rocked about a decade and a half ago, said, nothing will work, but everything might. So try everything. And it comes back to that notion of try at least three things. And, and then you won't know what it was that did the trick. But the synergistic combination of initiative will work. And to some extent, we could say that's an article of faith. But what I'm claiming is that if you do the research, you'll find other examples that are really happening now. So it's not theoretical. And I can say that in agriculture, 
there's a very significant movement into regenerative practices at scale. I don't want to name names, but one of the world's largest purveyors of hamburgers is making big moves in terms of regenerating the land and having grazing practices that don't harm nature. In fact, they're mandating that on previously unheard of scales. So the major players are getting it. And meanwhile, the smaller players are innovating and finding the new ways that work. So the partnerships between the larger companies and the smaller entrepreneurs are proliferating. I'm connected with another group in Australia that has a mission of feeding a billion people a day using an ecosystem of small and family scale businesses that improve life and improve nature every step of the way. So again, I can't point to one thing, but humanity as a whole, this might be an important point. See, we're not only a bunch of individuals, almost 8 billion of us, we're a superorganism at the level of the species. So there's a species mind. And I can drop into this level of being where I can get a sense of what the species is up to. And all of us could potentially do this. And as more and more of us do, and we feel how the species is evolving and choosing to move in relation to the larger system of the planet, we'll find we have immense resources, immense support, and quite a lot of synergy. So the collective IQ of the species is, you know, let's say if it were 100 times 8 billion, but it doesn't really work that way. Let's say, um, you know, a trillion. We can do a lot if we're coherent. And that was the key to the Maharishi effect, is you have the square root of 1% of a population in coherence, meditating together using certain practices that are known to work well for inducing a particular state. Yeah. And there are examples of that in in other realms, physics and biology, for instance, in the heart, 1% of the cells are pacemaker cells. They coordinate or regulate the beating of all the other cells in the heart. Or in a laser, as I understand it, if the square root of 1% of the photons become coherent with one another, all the other photons have been trained with them and you get a beam of light that acts like a single photon. It's coherent light. And so the, you know, the theory was that if enough individuals could become coherent, then even if they were a tiny fraction of the total population, they would have a outsized influence on the entire population and the whole collective consciousness could shift. So we've known how this is going to work. We've known the mechanics. Now we need to do it. I guess I still come back to how smooth could it be? Let's say that 20 years from now, we've undergone, or even 10 or whatever, we've undergone this big, beautiful shift that we're talking about, will we still have 8 billion people on the world or will it have come down to 1 billion or something or 500 million? Will there be tremendous loss of life or will we somehow find the resources of every sort to sustain our current populations without damaging the environment? Great questions. How smooth can it be? I have been told, this is secondhand, that the Kogi elders from South America, this is a tribe that weren't discovered in the 90s. They discovered us. They came down from the high peaks and said they had a message for the younger brother, which is to say Western civilization, that what we've been up to isn't working and has greatly destabilized the planetary systems. And we're in for some really rough times. And even maybe five or so years ago, there was still the prediction that uh, we could have catastrophic collapse from the Kogi elders. 
more recently, maybe two or three years ago, I heard that they said, actually, the guidance has changed. The way they tune into nature and they divine using water started to produce different answers that, in fact, humans had already done enough. We've already done enough to change our ways to at least lessen the severity of the shift and the symptoms of this change that's underway. We have plenty more to do. There's far too much that remains unsatisfactory, but we've already taken steps to, it sounds like, eliminate the scenario of catastrophic collapse. So if that's true, that's very encouraging because I know people who have been predicting huge population loss. And when I intuitively sit with this, and now I get the information that's pretty consistent over time, that we will not have that scenario. That yes, the population is going to begin to decrease naturally. And if you look at what's happening in many countries, birth rates are declining by choice, voluntarily. People are having fewer children because they don't need to, because there are other ways of working in the fields that are more efficient. And you know, there's so many different reasons and it's linked with education levels and it's linked with women having equal access to um, all of life really. So we probably will not drop down to 500 million. When I ask what is the optimal level to achieve, and I'm getting by the end of the century, so doesn't, this doesn't have to happen in 20 years. As long as we're moving in the right direction, I get, I'm getting about 2.5 billion and it'll be arranged. So let's say 2.5 to 3 billion people would be an optimal number, an optimal global population. And we can be sustainable before that, but we might choose to be more thrivable at this lower level. The way that we can be sustainable in the meantime is through vertical farming in cities. And there, there are ways to, um, without GMOs, grow lots of healthy organic food that can feed lots and lots of people and then distribute that food efficiently. So we're using less energy to do so. And when we are using a lot of energy, it can be hydrogen fuel cells, it can be solar, it can be everything but fossil fuel. All of this is possible now. I think it was Al Gore who said 20 years ago, we have maybe three times the amount of technology that we need. It's about our collective will and willingness to use it. I sent you a video this morning, which you haven't had a chance to watch yet, but it's about some place called the Knepp Estate in Sussex, England. Big castle that was built at the beginning of the 19th century and the the descendants of its builders still live there. And they were trying to make a go of it for 20 years, farming this vast property that they own. And it was not economically viable. But then they decided to just let it go wild and not do anything to it, basically. And now it's like this Garden of Eden kind of place where there's all the bees and butterflies and wild animals and everything are just doing their thing. And they do harvest, so to speak, a certain amount of meat from the land of, of the cows and the pigs and so on, because there are no natural predators and the whole thing would get totally out of balance if they didn't do that. And that makes it economically viable for them. They're kind of saying in this film that they would like to see networks of these things, interconnected networks just covering the land. It's like you don't even have to make a lot of effort to restore anything. It just restores itself if you allow it to. And I realize we're getting sort of into areas that aren't usually ex explicitly discussed in, in the realm of spirituality, but I think all this ties mm -hmm. in very much to spirituality. Yes, I agree. For me, the world is the proving ground for spirituality. There are many paths, many philosophies, many different approaches to 
awakening. And then there are levels of awakening beyond awakening. So we could have a profound awakening to a state of bliss outside of time and space and think that's it. <laughs> and yet what I've found, and like I've really experienced this, is when I bring it back to the world and really love the world and love the people in it and love the work that I do, then the world transforms. So the world then starts to reflect healing and joy. It's not just my bliss at having escaped from it all. It's like, no, no, I have just as much bliss as I had outside of time and space, but now I have it in the world. And now the world is reflecting the deeper truth. And what I've discovered, again, directly is that then I drop into a deeper awakening. There's an awakening, which is truly non-dual, where... There's no separation between the outer world and, and the deeper realm. Sure, one is changing all the time, utterly, absolutely dynamic. And another level seems to be completely still and a certain kind of peace. But there's also a dynamic peace. And it's that intersection, it's that meeting of the absolute and the relative. That's really the sweet spot. And I would say even the purpose of the journey of God. So not to shirk our possible encounters with the world at the same time having a perspective where we know that in fact what we deeply deeply are is the foundation of existence and in some ways we're deeper than that because that can still be named what i've come to particularly during the retreat is is a recognition of the totally majestic you the totally majestic me which is deeper than consciousness so nisargadatta talks about prior to consciousness so i'm not the only one here deeper even than love, deeper than all expression, deeper than the absolute and the relative, certainly if those are constructs, but also, as I've defined them, as aspects of this profound nature. And so that's a rich conversation. But the point being, if we know the, the profound nature, and then we exist on some level in a human form, interacting with humans and with nature and animals in a loving way, my goodness, Nothing is more wonderful than that. Yeah. Vedanta talks about Nirguna Brahman and Saguna Brahman. Brahman without qualities, Brahman with qualities. You could also equate it with the impersonal and personal aspects of God. I studiously avoid interviewing Neo-Advaita people who all they say is, nothing exists, you don't exist, blah, 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 and they go on and on with that without completing the sentence and saying, yes, and also things do exist and you exist. You have to do a both and to really be balanced. Yes. I had my neo-advaita phase. In fact, a funny story. When I applied for my first uh, visa to go to India in 2015, one of the questions is religion. And I had to really think about that. What's, what's my religion? It didn't feel right to leave it blank because you really want to fill out the forms carefully in India or else some official will happily dismiss you. So I reflected and I wrote down advaita. That was the truest answer I could come up with. Non-duality is probably the, the nearest statement of what I've realized. And I have a sense that we could go beyond non-duality, at least as we framed it, as we've understood it. And so there is some fresh terrain to be explored there. But nevertheless, yes, I had my Advaita moments and, and I would have been the one saying none of this is real because at that time, for some reason, I was still in the process of unhooking and detaching from what I had been attached to. So that's a useful phase. But then... When you're clear and clean, or at least clearer and cleaner, you come back and can be uh, useful and serve what remains. That's the bodhisattva approach. And, and even that is not the ultimate answer, but it's an important stage as well. 
And it's also part of traditional Advaita. You talk to somebody like Swami Sarvapriyananda, and, you know, he, I just took a course with him recently on the Mandukya Upanishad, which is very much heavy on nothing ever happened. But then even at the end of that, it says, but you can't live this way. And so, you know, you have to take into account the Vyavaharika truth, the transactional reality of life, which in the same breath you can say that doesn't exist, but at the same time it does and you're alive. And if you really wanted to walk your talk and insist that it didn't exist, you would just lie down and stop eating and breathing. But it's just not the reality. I mean, reality is multidimensional, multifaceted. And, yes. and as we were saying earlier, the name of the game is to traverse or incorporate all the dimensions, not hang out in one to the exclusion of the others. Right. Yes. Because if we are that, then we're all of that. Exactly. So why would we limit ourselves to one room or another? Right. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Here's something I've heard you quote a number of times, which I'd like. It was a quote from Jonas Salk, who developed the polio vaccine. Speaking of vaccines, he said, intuition tells the thinking mind where to look. Yes. Well, you've just said it, and I couldn't agree more. And indeed, the best scientists, the ones who make the big discoveries, let's say, tend to have very well-developed intuitions. I was reading an article the other day that asked, where are the intuitive physicists in this age, those who had the capacity to discover quantum mechanics and make profound contributions to the standard model of physics? And there's a whole lot of intuition that went into the, quote, hard sciences. And of course, uh, the polio vaccine, People are going to have a lot of different opinions about this, but it changed the world. Oh, yeah. Um, many people died. Many people were paralyzed. Um, yeah, disabled for life. And that changed. So, as you said in a recent interview, hooray, big pharma in that instance. Yeah. So, and the smallpox vaccine. I mean, smallpox I, killed yeah. 300 million people in the 20th century, and it was not a pleasant way to die. And that disease has been eliminated through the vaccine. And now we can be responsible. Somebody I respect said, I'm not anti-vax. This is somebody who's in the movement, by the way, that would be called anti-vax. He said, I'm pro-responsible vaccination. So that starts to sound like the bridge, the higher level synthesis that I'm looking for. Again, another conversation. So intuition in science and intuition played into that moment I had of the Kundalini awakening. I had this flash of insight and suddenly there was an awakening within my, my energetic body, at least. I see that the species as a whole is going through a process, an initiation, if you will, whereby we're shifting from operating primarily through intellect to, and the shift is to, operating primarily from, and maybe that's 51%, maybe it's 91%, intuition. If this is true, and this is what I'm saying, dropping into the species mind, I get, yep, that's exactly what's happening. And the optimal blend for the species as a whole, which means some people would be more expressed in their intellect and others in their intuition, but on balance would be, um, I am getting about 75% intuition, 25% intellect. So it's like our vast mind is able to, in a kind of quantum computational way, entertain many, many possibilities and then select the paths that are most promising. And then the intellect can structure the technology or the systems that are needed to continue the exploration. So that will work really well. If we go back into the deeper history of humans, uh, we could see, and I'm not like an expert in evolutionary biology, but we could see that humans were operating primarily from instinct. And at some point there was a shift to operating much more from intellect. 
But we're at another threshold now. And that's another reason that it's such a tumultuous period, because our operating system is changing and we don't have our usual reference points. And at first, when we get liberated and people say, you know, trust your your inner knowing more than what people tell you, you're going to get some chaotic results, which, again, is what we're seeing in terms of uh, the current discourse on vaccination and you know, is there really a virus or isn't there? I'm not going to opine on that. But yes, we have questions around the validity of the science. And then the people who would be on the kind of more, let's say, alternative side of the conversation have a point because science is evolving. There is a paradigm shift that's occurring where we are learning to be more subjective in our evaluation Apparently, there's a crisis of repeatability in science where certain results aren't being repeated as faithfully as uh, as used to be the case. Rupert Sheldrake uh, writes about that in the, um, the Science Delusion. But I'm very pro-science. I'm very pro-science in the sense that we've got a baseline now and it's time to go to another level. If we look at the science that is, um, we could say, has been common, we could say that's like grade one or grade two or maybe grade three in the big school of life. My feeling is we're collectively shifting to grade six or seven very quickly because we're going to bring in the intuition. We're going to bring in the subjectivity of our experience and our experiential knowing and our spiritual practices. So science and spirituality in this process are on a very convergent path. Yeah, let's talk about this for a while. I know you watched a a talk that I gave about six years ago on that topic, and um, maybe you have some thoughts about some of the points I made there. But before we get into that, you said a minute ago that Earlier cultures operated primarily on intuition or instinct. But, you know, maybe it was more of a, I don't mean to be insulting, but maybe it was in many cases more of a kind of an animal sort of instinct, hunter-gatherer kind of thing. My tribe good, that tribe bad. I want this woman or I want this territory, that kind of thing. As with anything, there are subtler levels to instinct. Obviously, the dawning of intellect and the scientific method brought us out of the Middle Ages, in which a lot of ridiculous things were believed, in in which a lot of people were killed and tortured for thinking outside the box of the of the church, and so we definitely needed that reformation. And um, but then, you know, too much intellect. I mean, it took really bright intellects to make the atomic bomb um, and other such things, which have brought great peril to humanity. And so. You know, it's kind of like we we walk one foot at a time. So the intellect took a step ahead, and now maybe, like you're saying, it's time for the intuition to to take the next step. But perhaps it won't be the same intuition that you know guided prehistoric tri- uh, civilizations. Perhaps it'll be more along the lines that we've been discussing today in terms of refined, source-oriented spiritual intuition. Yes. Otherwise, we could fall into the pre-post fallacy that uh, integral philosophers talk about, where you know, there's the, the kind of uh, romantic notion of the, the enlightened um, primitive civilizations. And, um, well, we've learned a lot, and it's time now to integrate all that we've learned and all the different levels, because the reptilian brain is still with us. <laughs> you know, the deeper, baser instincts are still part of our, um, of our brain and our whole body. So... Um, can we embrace the whole? I mean, that's really the question. Can we embrace the whole on every level? Yeah. And um, and I agree with you. I'm, I'm also very enthusiastic about, I mean, science in its pure form, the scientific method is, 
is brilliant and it's a way of um gaining knowledge that is not um ideally it is not subject to the distortions and whims of individual opinion and subjectivity but scientists are human beings and so they do have whims and and subjectivity and it was Max, Max Planck who said that science progresses one funeral at a time um, because people get, they cling to, you know, their perspective, their paradigm, and they reject and dismiss anything that challenges it. And that is good in a way because it provides some stability to knowledge. You don't just sort of topple the whole edifice with every suggestion that conflicts with it. But at the same time, eventually you have to allow new evidence to shift the paradigms. Sometimes it seems to happen agonizingly slowly, but it does happen. Absolutely, it does happen. And in the scheme of things on evolutionary timescales, it's happening very, very quickly, maybe within the span of a generation or two. Well, interesting that you said that science, as is currently practiced, is in some ways a response to or a way of um, avoiding the pitfalls of subjectivity. What I see happening, and I was sitting with this this morning, is that this evolution of science, as it, it grows up, as it grows up from grade one, two, or three to six or seven quickly, it is involving more subjectivity, yeah, actually, yeah. in the process. Because if we have an extremely powerful mind that can recreate the world quickly, then the key to using that mind is actually knowing it, knowing it firsthand, knowing it as us, knowing it from the inside, not through objective knowledge. So there are limits to objective knowledge. Objective knowledge is fabulous up until the point that we can go no further with it. And now I would offer that we are at that point. Some of us are at that point. Some of us are past that point. Um, it's a bit of a spectrum, maybe even a bell curve. So I was seeing that we are being invited by life to shift from 21% subjectivity in our current scientific models to 91%. And that's going to be a kind of messy process as we collectively go through the stages of clarifying our capacity to see clearly. Once we can see clearly, the subjectivity is miraculous. Once we see clearly, we see that the entirety of manifestation is our own outpicturing in some sense, and we have the power to outpicture differently. And then there's a feedback loop that happens, and I can really feel this viscerally. So there's feedback from the world. Maya, we could say, the world of illusion, is actually our best friend because it's continuously showing us where we're not awake. And if we are totally awake, which I would offer that no human embodied person is totally awake, then Maya is showing us where there are opportunities to produce more beauty. So yes, pay attention, pay attention to all the signals from the so-called external world. And then those signals get fed back in through the subjectivity to the creative core within our own fundamental nature, which is the ground of existence. And that creative core, that deep agency, which we could call God, then sets in motion various deep processes that produce the new the new creation, which is more beautiful, which is more awake. And that is that's exactly what I'm up to with these uh, retreats and even you know every day in my practice of meditation. I'm now very conscious about this feedback loop. And even before we started speaking today, I was working with a series of tones that I've produced to create the conditions for world healing at scale. Another conversation. But I was getting that really we all have profound ways that we can contribute. We need to maybe suspend the disbelief a little bit and give it a try, but we'll be amazed at the subjectivity and what that opens up. 
As you know, there are science fundamentalists who feel that anything that science as we currently practice it or understand it cannot verify must not be true. For instance, I was listening last winter. I remember I was shoveling snow. I was listening to a conversation between Sean Carroll, who's this really brilliant guy. I was I had been listening to his podcast for a while, and B. Alan Wallace, who's a Buddhist, um, Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And at one point in the conversation, they were talking about life after death. And Sean Carroll just said flat out, there isn't any. You know, when you die, you die. That's the end of your existence. And he, he was just so dogmatic or fundamentalist about the way he stated it. And Alan Wallace was very polite, and he said, well you may end up being surprised when the time comes. And I actually haven't listened to Sean Carroll since then. I I just thought, I'm not going to spend any more time on this guy. I guess the question that I could ask you here is, to what extent can subjective technologies of consciousness, which could actually enable us to explore whether there's life after death or whether angels exist or whether higher realms exist and all this stuff which ordinary material science hasn't a clue about, to what extent can those abide by the principles of the scientific method and be really rigorous and repeatable and and verifiable? Or will they not be able to because they are just too subjective and just too prone to imagination and speculation and belief? Yes, another great question. So let's take remote viewing, which okay. is a technology of consciousness where somebody tunes into some piece of information and is able to see the location, for instance, of a, a sunken ship. Right, or a plane or, that crashed you know, whatever in the jungle it might be. or something. And that has proved to be quite reliable, especially with experienced practitioners who have that ability. In some indigenous societies, even today, there are those who have the gift of mind flight, so they can project astrally or otherwise above the earth and look down and see the landscape and they create maps and whatnot with that information. So it can be studied if there's an open mind and we will find that quite a lot of it is repeatable and uh, verifiable in the way that we're comfortable with in the current scientific paradigm and method. My sense is we can go a bit further and we can stretch the current paradigm to let's say 41% subjectivity before it becomes too uncomfortable for the fundamentalists. And the let's see, the remote viewing is at 41%. Okay, look, we don't have to take my um, percentages literally. I this always smile when you give these percentages <laughs> because they seem so precise, you know, like... Uh, well, that's I, it. That's why how isn't I work. 43.875? <laughs> if you want decimal places, I can give you decimal places. <laughs> <laughs> then we go into... Um, more subjective realms. We could say interdimensionality is a more subjective realm. I get that's... I get that's up there, 91%. And this morning, again, in my explorations of the convergence of science and spirituality, I was looking at um, a cluster of, um, well, points that I've assembled on a map, which is a really big map, so I won't get into the details. But I'm pulling together different scientific ideas and potential breakthroughs and, and spiritual ideas and seeing what calibrates in the same neighborhood. And in one neighborhood, we have a complete understanding of in- interdimensionality is closely correlated with understanding gravity and anti-gravity, black holes, nuclear physics, faster than light travel, and biology, interestingly. And there are different clusters, different neighborhoods on this map. So I would propose that if we're able to shift into another state of consciousness and explore these other realms, such as, well, the Monroe Institute 
can teach us to do. So there are different techniques for accessing, what do they call them, different levels, uh, access levels, I think they are, uh, where you can go out into space and you can interact with other civilizations and spaceships. And interestingly, when multiple people do this, they have very similar experiences that can be cross-referenced afterwards. So that's an interesting hybrid of, it's subjective because each individual is meditating and going onto a spaceship for goodness sake um, and seeing things that other people who are in their own room doing something similar also see. So you get there some objectivity as well. So there's a lot that already exists that we could explore very rigorously, and people are exploring it rigorously. That doesn't necessarily mean that the research is being published in the standard uh, journals, but there are non-standard journals and things are shifting. I know uh, a number of consciousness researchers, uh, a friend named Stefan Schwartz would be fascinating for you to interview, by the way. He has assembled so much research on what previously would have been called paranormal, but is actually just normal. Remind me about him later. Send me an email or something. Sure. Yeah, yeah we'll do. Earlier on, you made your hands go like this, converging together, you know, representing the trajectory that science and spirituality might take in the coming years. And um, as you're speaking, you also mentioned ETs. I was thinking, well, if ETs are bopping around the universe and have visited us and so on, they have probably achieved that merger. Some people say, first of all, they haven't blown themselves up. They, they lived long enough to develop technologies capable of faster than light travel, for instance. And secondly, you know, many people say that somehow they incorporate consciousness within their technologies. Their ships wouldn't work unless they were at a level of consciousness in which they could somehow interact with the ship in a fundamental way. Maybe you could elaborate on it better, but I guess the question, if I distill this into a question, is do you envision an advanced civilization here in which science and spirituality would result in not only harmony and productivity and equity for all, but profoundly different technologies than we now have, which are as much technologies of consciousness as they are physical technologies. Absolutely. That feels more like 2050. If I resonate, I would say 2050 to 2065, so that time frame right now, and we might see some, some major visible evidence of this convergence. And at the same time, the combined science and spirituality is already here. Another of my favorite quotes is, um, let's see, is it William Gibson? The future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. So <laughs> we're having a conversation. William Gibson? No, he wrote Neuromancer, oh, right. uh, one of the early yeah, cyberpunk novels, which definitely had an effect on me. It would be an influence uh, for sure, along with a book called Snow Crash. Uh, yeah. I used to know his wife. His wife was I named Margaret Crash. Brenman Gibson, if I'm thinking of the same William okay. Gibson. And, and she was into TM and spoke at a bunch of symposiums mm -hmm. that I helped to set up and stuff. Wonderful. We have our own rabbit holes to explore. Yeah. On the topic of ETs, I feel like there's one more point to say, and this probably isn't a common domain or Buddha at the gas pump. And I'm actually relatively reluctant to talk about phenomena. I've done a couple of interviews are. on it, and it, it yeah. interests me. Yeah, I mean, it is an area where um, the scientist in me is challenged, but much less now than before. And so what I get when I meditate on what's really happening is that it's our own transpersonal nature meeting us symbolically in ways that we can relate to. So it's our own collective, but deep collective, deeper life which is not individualized the way that we tend to be as humans 
today. It's these other layers of our own beingness that is showing up in different ways to to guide us home, you could say. So it's sort of like Gary Renard's idea of meeting some beings that are him from 2000 years from now or some such thing. Fair enough. Very similar to that. And even then one could debate whether Artin and Persa, that's the names. I read the book, whether they were really in the future or that was the narrative that Gary needed in order to understand and receive the teaching. And, and my sense, my strong sense is that we're being given information that isn't necessarily factually true about the future and other civilizations, but it's what we need in order to learn what we need to learn. So, I'm saying a lot these days, time will tell. We're going to find out. Um, But uh, I can say that my stepfather, after my dad passed, my mom remarried a retired four-star Air Force general. And he had experiences, direct experiences in the UK. He was connected with something major that happened there where a ship landed and was touched and, you know, left prints and all kinds of evidence. Yeah, I've read about that whole thing. So he was there, but in command. So he wasn't the one who was in the field at the time. And then he went on to become a four-star general and in charge of the Pacific Air Force Command. So he was a very credible guy who also, when he was a fighter pilot, had a direct encounter with a, a craft that could that was so maneuverable they, they couldn't keep up and you know, they couldn't do all the fancy things that uh, this other craft was doing. What I've also felt to be very true and calibrated as true is that these various phenomena that we're seeing now, AEPs, that's the new acronym, because people don't want to say UFO, where craft are moving in, in ways that defy our understanding of physics, making right angle turns, which you know ought to be impossible. Inertia ought to result in the ship blowing apart if you have that many Gs. It's really showing us that physics isn't what we think it is. Uh, and this brings in the interdimensionality. You know, there is another layer to what we are perceiving. And it's not just another dimension, as physicists understand spatial dimensions. It's another degree of freedom, many other degrees of freedom, which are actually consciousness, different rooms of consciousness, perhaps. So interdimensional may or may not be the word, but that's how I'm relating to it. And as we unfold ourselves into a more dimensional way of being and relating to one another and to life, then we gain access to capacities. We gain higher levels of science and technology. And another point that we can make about um, such phenomena as phenomena of consciousness, if a dear friend of mine who's been on this show, but I'm not inclined to name names, he had an experience in California where in a very crowded place, a ship came within maybe a hundred yards. It was very close, turned on its side, beamed red lights at him, and he had the experience of downloads of information, and his wife also had that experience. And then the ship disappeared, and actually I think it just dissolved into thin air. Is that Paul Anka? No. Nobody else saw this. Yeah, but he I seem saw to remember it, so, it, so maybe we talked about it during mm. our interview, but I don't remember who yeah. it was. So I, I would propose that actually it's happening within our expanded awareness and it gets projected on the screen of three-dimensional reality. And then we'd be inclined to say that it's really there, but it's not. And this brings us back to the, the deep spiritual insight that nothing is really there. And it's true. But whatever seems to be there is also interesting and useful and certainly fun to explore. So we continue exploring. We, we call that science. And the supreme science and the supreme spirituality will lead us to the discovery of us, of the true us, the totally majestic us. Yeah. That's the ground of it all. Well, you know, like regarding your friend who had that experience where he saw the thing and nobody else saw it, maybe these things 
they travel inter- interdimensionally, not just physically from point A to point B. Did you see that movie Arrival with um Yes. Yeah. The ship didn't come zooming in. It just sort of materialized out of a cloud, as it were. And when it left, it dematerialized. So it could be that your friend just happened to have the perception to see that subtler dimension, whereas the people around him didn't. And maybe it could even be said that he was meant to see it. Therefore, they granted him the ability to see it or something like that. So consciousness is fascinating. You know, a lot is possible that we have only begun to imagine, in some cases, experience. This friend of mine had gone on a six-month meditation retreat, which probably helped to open him to other types of experience. So as we do more spiritual practice, we become more available to life in all of its forms. You know, there are certain pitfalls along the way because we could become enamored of ETs or this or that kind of peak experience or I keep hearing the word like Yahoo moment. (laughs) So we need to be discerning but also really curious because all of this is information for our own benefit and ultimately awakening to who, what, and that which we really are. Yeah. So were you saying a few minutes ago that you don't think these are beings from other planets, but rather they are somehow just aspects of ourselves or something that we're interacting with? There'll be a both and, there'll be an all and. Because in in the embodied experience, in order to relate to the information substrate of existence, uh, we have embodied interactions. And so, so life will show up as beings from other planets. And are they really there? The neo-advaitists would say absolutely not. They may as well be. Our instruments show that there are other planets. Um, yeah. So I won't be surprised. And they're showing up beings, on the radar of fighter yeah. jets and stuff. That's right. That's right. So I won't be at all surprised if, if I meet one. In fact, I'm very open to that. And at the same time, I am wary of becoming enamored with the kind of titillating possibilities. And at the same time, I would say that the very real possibility of help from the cosmos, from our own cosmic mind, perhaps, is a leading edge topic for spirituality. It will surely have vast implications for the existing traditions. Like, how do we incorporate this new information? You know, where does that fit within the Gita. Well, actually, within the Mahabharata, there are references that could be, you know, ancient astronauts, I think they're called. Mm-hmm. So it's very fascinating. Um, and I come back to doing my practice because this is where we need to stay grounded. We need to stay grounded in present circumstances. I don't see any ETs around me at the moment, so stay focused. Oh, there's one right over your left shoulder there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, he's going to bite you. Sight. <laughs> Well, there's Amma over your right Yeah, that's right. She could be one too. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) when you say both and, I I agree with that. Maybe some of them are from elsewhere in the galaxy, and maybe some of them are, well, another possibility, some of them are celestial beings who live on in our realm as much as we do, but just at a subtler level. And maybe sometimes people see those kinds of things and think, oh, it's an E.T., and it's, it's not extraterrestrial, it's terrestrial, but just dwelling in a subtler realm. Yes, for sure. Well, I've I've spent a fair amount of time at Findhorn, uh, which is a community in northern Scotland where people have been exploring the subtler realms right. and the intelligences of nature and the Davic beings and having very clear relationships with such beings. So I was uh, at a gathering with uh, a woman who was uh, on the board of trustees in a very senior position. Again, I'm not naming names. And she had never had an encounter with the subtle being. But she loved Findhorn. Well, 
we went out into the field as part of some process of exploring, and we'd had some activation when we were together inside. And lo and behold, she saw a unicorn, and it just, she was gobsmacked. She was <laughs> actually a little shaken. So that's the thing. Like, we're not used to non-ordinary states of consciousness and experiences of you know, beings from subtler dimensions. And when it first happens, it can be jarring. So the compassion of life is such that we only really get that when we're ready. And probably if it's useful for us, you know, there are a lot of things we could do. There are a lot of things we could explore, not all of which is useful for the present circumstances we find ourselves in. Yep. Yeah, Marsh used to, used to use the analogy of capturing a fort. He said, okay, there's like a territory and there are all these different diamond mines and gold mines and interesting things you could try to get into around the territory, but it's not your territory. So if you really want to explore those things, first capture the fort, which would be source, to use your word. And then having established yourself in that, you own the territory. You can explore these things at your leisure without endangering yourself in some way or sidetracking yourself. And also, there's the practice of relaxing and letting life arise. So without desire or clinging to experiences or or wanting to have certain types of experiences. I'm much more in that state these days. And yet life rejoices in expressing itself in abundant ways and surprising ways and ways that we would call miracles, ways we would call impossible. So to open ourselves to the miraculous, to the quote impossible, is a very powerful spiritual practice. We deepen very quickly when we start to experience directly the nature of limitless mind. And I think that if one finds that one has a lively curiosity about things, there's no harm in thinking about them or talking about them or reading about them, as long as they don't become obsessions and you know get right. you off the track. It's interesting here, here. to ponder the field of all possibilities expressing itself and to not dumb creation down to what happens to be evident to us, but to realize that there are all kinds of wonders and marvels and and so on that might be outside the realm of our personal experience. I noticed this morning a a guy posted a question in the BatGap Facebook group, and I was going to actually answer it, but I didn't have time. But he was saying something like, I'm asking you this because you're a physicist. Do you think that the light that comes from light bulbs or the sun or any ordinary source of light could in some sense be the same light that we're referring to when we talk of the light of God or light in a spiritual context. And I've actually often wondered that, funnily enough. From what I understand of light, like if you could see things from a photon's perspective, you would get from the Andromeda galaxy to here instantly. There would be no lapse of time. At the speed of light, time and space kind of collapse. And so in that sense, it seems like light is omnipresent, which is one of the things they say about spiritual light. And yet at the same time, we've been talking a little bit about the celestial realm, which is like subtler than the astral, subtle, subtle field. And it's characterized by light. Everything is said to glow in, in celestial light. And that would seem to be a different kind of light than we get from ordinary light bulbs and stuff. So is that a weird question or do you have anything to say about that? It's not a weird question at all. It's a, I want to say it's a perfect question. <laughs> so just, just as there is so much more to understand about gravity, for instance, or the complete understanding of black holes would open up other realms that we would call spiritual or metaphysical today, the complete understanding of light goes beyond our current physical understanding of photons and, and quantization and time and space and the speed of light and relativistic effects. There's a lot more to explore. So let's see, how much of light do we really understand in our current science? I get we have a 3% understanding. And when that 
expands to towards 100, we'll realize, yes, spiritual light, well, comes in many shapes and forms and uh, frequencies and types. And, you know, one of which is what we interact with when we're using uh, interferometers. But uh, actually, it's the same light. And in fact, the light is the fundamental essence, this, the deep light, capital L light, that then takes form in so many ways and on so many levels. So, so it's all light. Maybe just as light has different frequency bands within it, and visible light itself is just a tiny, tiny fraction of the total electromagnetic um, spectrum, maybe there's a third dimension of light that goes from gross to subtle. Remember, Jesus always used to say, for those who can hear, let them hear. And maybe he could have said, for those who can see, let them see. So there could be, like we are talking about the lady with seeing the unicorn and so on, there were realms of phenomena that are beneath the threshold of our perceptual ability, both visual and auditory and other senses, and that if we expand those capacities, we begin to live in a world which contains all kinds of interesting things that have been there all along, but that we couldn't perceive. I get a yes to all of that. And something came to me for the first time as you were sharing, which is, in addition to there being a spectrum, which is sort of a quantitative variability, there are qualitative differences that express as different forms of light. So deep down, like grand unified light theory, it's all the same light, but then it, it prisms and bifurcates. I'm hearing partitions into these different expressions of light on different levels. And it might not just be a third dimension, as you say, there might be a lot of parameters that creation can play with. Yeah. I actually read an article recently which was discussing how E equals MC squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. You can turn that equation around and they've actually found that light can produce matter. I don't know how they did it, but yes. experimentally that happened recently. they actually did it. Yeah, but They actually experimentally did it, yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. One of the things in your notes, daily life is a spiritual practice. Do you feel like we've covered that adequately or you want to say some more about that? Well, because it's coming up, I trust that there is more to say, and I definitely get a yes to that in, in the way that is usual. So that's really the opportunity of life, I would say, for every moment to be an opening, an awakening. Every moment doesn't have to be a peak experience. Every moment includes the possibility of total spiritual fruition. And then it becomes a bit of a game, I would say, what is the highest possibility for this moment? Now, when we're in survival mode, you know, going back to the earlier conversation about the current state of collective consciousness has a lot of us in suffering and struggling to survive. So I honor that that is the experience of a lot of people. And when we're in that state, it's hard to imagine playing with consciousness. So my sincere hope is that we move quickly out of that state collectively. So when we have the uh, ability, the time, the space, uh, maybe to some extent the financial wherewithal, but we don't need money to do this practice of being present. And Eckhart Tolle showed us we can be present in our car or when we're getting a coffee and we can sit for a moment and be still and you know, create a gap around whatever it is that's happening. So that is wisdom for spiritual practice as a pervasive activity within one's life. For me, it takes the form of continuous attunement. So if I'm at a restaurant and I look at a menu, I douse with my finger. Um, it, that's one way I can do it. And I get, ah, oh, this is the, the optimal 
entree for me. And, oh, this is the optimal entree, except, you know, it's the vegetarian option. So, you know, okay, there, there's some permutations to play with. And so it is, a, it is a game, and it's incredibly fun, and it's incredibly joyful. And the best part is it really works as a way of um, living that brings fulfillment, I've found. So by showing my, I'm hearing my allegiance to truth in every moment, life just comes to a higher level of uh, vibrancy and richness and doors open and opportunities come. And I'm not saying this has to be the experience for everyone, because if we all were the same, you know, that wouldn't be the flowering diversity that makes oneness so amazing. But, um, you know, there is the possibility of a life where we love our work and money flows to us because we're serving selflessly. Those two can actually be synthesized and we can make a difference in the world while also retreating um, you know, into deep spaces for periods of time. We can, pardon the expression, have our cake and eat it too. And that I feel is actually spiritual, that it is spiritual to live abundantly and a key to living abundantly, which is what we all seem to want, whether we say it or not. I don't mean materially only, is this attunement uh, and having life be a continuous spiritual practice. That's what I've learned. We'll see if it's a general truth. Yeah. Another thing that comes to my mind when we say that is that ultimately everything is God. And it's God, you know, appearing as trees and dogs and food and all the other stuff that we interact with. And so there's infinite intelligence on display in every little thing, every tiny little thing from the tiniest to the biggest. And if you kind of tune into that way of seeing things, then you're kind of walking through God as you move through your day. And and, and everything has, I mean, you don't have to intellectualize it like, oh, what is the significance of this? But everything has some evolutionary significance or it wouldn't be happening. Completely. And that's non-duality when we can really live in and as the presence of God, experiencing our self, capital S, and our our deeper nature beyond and prior to self in every form. As has been said in our holographic universe by a friend of mine named Jude Curvin, who oh, yeah. a great book I've, about I've this. Interviewed her. Oh. You know, every part contains the whole. All of the information is available in everything. And, and this is one level of understanding that it's all God. God is omnipresent, imminent, and always ever available. And the more we engage, the more we're engaging with ourselves. And the more there is God realization. Ultimately, the journey is of, well, I would say even realization beyond God realization, because even that feels like maybe it's cultural, maybe it's the accretion of concepts, but I feel not to hold on too tightly to that phraseology. Yeah. And obviously, with any phraseology, we have to, we'd probably have to spend half an hour defining our terms, but we don't need to do that. Here's a little bit of an out of the blue question. I was walking in the park listening to one of your interviews or talks. And um, you said something that I thought, I want to ask him about that. I can actually remember exactly where I was in the park when this happened. I was walking past this wild plum tree. You said, the second law of thermodynamics won't be upheld forever because consciousness transduces energy into the world of matter. And correct me if I didn't write that down correctly. My thinking was, hasn't that always been happening? By the way, the second law of thermodynamics is that closed systems tend to become more and more entropic or disorderly. Isn't it due to the tendency of consciousness to infuse orderliness into the universe that we have a universe and that the universe has sentient life in it? That's very astute. So there's been negative entropy all along. Mm -hmm. 
I was writing about this recently. I haven't published it yet, but uh, there is an organizing intelligence that doesn't operate within time and space as we currently understand it in physical terms, and yet influences the arrangement of things. And from what I've, oh, I guess I would say experienced, although it's dicey to say what it was exactly, uh, but the sense of chaos actually being the state within which the invisible guidance, the, the invisible guiding hand can operate to shift things because we are not able to track the causality. And so it's like the infinite um, can express its agency without seeming to interfere with what we currently understand to be the laws of physics. So there, there are these other levels which are always involved and involved, like they are involved in matter. And what I was talking about uh, in that interview, as I recall, was this sense, and, and probably where I would have to revise my statement, but there is a sense of the vaster plenum within which our universe of time and space and energy and matter is embedded, and that there is a kind of a leaking into our universe from this vaster plenum, so then it wouldn't be a closed system. But actually, everything is infinite. Freeman Dyson wrote a book called Infinite in All Directions that influenced me greatly back in college. Everything is infinite. There is nothing that is actually finite. So when we're talking about conservation of finite values, that premise will be eroded over time. And I used the word, I think I may have coined it, infinitization to talk about this process of, of shifting in our perception from perceiving finitude to knowing the infinity in and as all things. And some common examples from... Um, fractal theory, you have the coastline of the UK. If you measure it with a one meter yardstick, you get a certain value. If you use a half a meter, funny that it would be meters and yards, measuring stick, then you get a bigger value. And if you keep reducing the scale of the measuring stick, then you get an ever increasing value for the circumference, if you will, of this island that I'm currently on. So that's actually infinite in the limit case. And when you look closely at a physical system, you zoom in and you see it's, it's space and there's all of this latent energy and even one cubic centimeter of space. And that, uh, I think, was David Bohm who said a cubic centimeter of space contains so much energy, it's like more than is currently expressed as the visible universe. So what are we talking about when we talk about conservation of energy? My sense is we have so much to learn there. Certainly our ideas will not be conserved. And the reason this interests me, and that was very well stated there, is that the predominant scientific paradigm is materialism, or I guess they sometimes call it reductionism. I have these occasional debates or arguments with people who feel there is no such thing as God, and that somehow or other the laws of nature just are what they are, and the universe does what it does without there being any kind of guiding or pervading intelligence to make it happen. There's a famous quote from Brian Swim, who is not a materialist, but he says, you know, you leave hydrogen alone for 13.7 billion years and you end up with giraffes and rose bushes and opera. And why should all this orderliness and beauty arise out of basically nothing? You know, there's this whole, I think it's called the entropic principle or something, where there are numerous variables, dozens if not a couple hundred, which if any of them had been ever so slightly off, we wouldn't either have had a universe or there wouldn't be any life in whatever universe we had. And materialists, actually, they argue that away by saying, well, perhaps there is an infinitude of universes 
and this is the many universe theory, and that we just happen to be in the one where everything kind of worked out. But that's just random chance. All those other universes are duds. We're in the lucky one. So that seems like like really not a parsimonious way of looking at it. It's such a stretch. And it's so much more obvious and easy and simple to say that it's all intelligence interacting with itself and, you know, get over it. And I fully get that it's all intelligence. It's all intelligent. In fact, during the month-long retreat, one of the big insights was the relationship between manifestation and what I call limitless mind. And what I saw, and this is experiential, so I went in meditation and kind of looked at limitless mind, I saw 12 fractal-like territories of thought that named themselves, for what it's worth, and we could get into that another time, that interact to give rise to the experience of stuff and vibration and energy and all of that. So it's all happening within limitless mind and limitless mind being limitless. And really, I mean that it's absolutely infinite in all directions, has the capacity to create infinitely many universes. So it's possible. It doesn't pass the the principle of parsimony test. And we can't necessarily know. I believe you were referring to the anthropic principle. And there's a strong anthropic principle as well, and this is going back a ways, but basically the strong anthropic principle, if I'm not mistaken, says it had to be this way so that humans could emerge. Well, that to me sounds like intelligent design and God uh, all over again. So probably science is going to continue, even with the materialists, to loop back around and, and connect with the deepest insights of spirituality. It's inevitable, even in the near term. Yeah, and I would say it's a little bit narrow-minded to say, oh, this all happened so humans could emerge, because I bet you there are plenty of life forms that are more impressive than we are. And I would also say that um, if there are numerous universes, those aren't duds either. Those are, are, are brimming with intelligence and life as much as this one is. Yes. Well, I calibrate that it's true. You know, we, we could have a fun exploration, which would be much more freeform, where, well, we'd love to do this, where we actually bring up scientific ideas and we test them using the tuning fork. And ideally, not just mine, but we could have a group of people who have some capacity to feel the resonance of truth, deep truth. And this would be the most fun way I can imagine for evolving the the scientific and spiritual paradigm, um, actually going through various hypotheses and feeling in. This is where Jonas Salk would have a good time as well, feeling intuitively into which ones are most promising. And then the hardcore scientists can go off and, and do their experiments and, and see which ones actually work. It was um, Nikola Tesla who predicted that if we would look more deeply at the subtle energy and consciousness, I would add, science would progress a thousand years in maybe 10 years, but a huge acceleration in terms of the speed of our progress. And that is going to happen. I feel that is imminent. That could be one of the things that really saves humanity in the next uh, decade or so is that uh, we discover vastly more capable technologies for healing and and getting around. Well, that's kind of one of the things we've been talking about today. You know, we have to just unfold that dimension. We're kind of like the vertical dimension. We could say we're not going to solve all our problems with just the horizontal dimension of the growth level things that physical instruments alone can measure. But hooray for 
physical instruments. Hooray for everything that has gotten us to this point where we have the ability to choose to move consciously to another level of understanding and a deeper level of spiritual wisdom and to bring those together. It's amazing. I'm in awe and deeply appreciative of the human journey for all of its challenges and all of its um, missteps, apparent missteps, which actually have uh, contributed to our collective learning. So I am hopeful for what's coming. I uh, I will continue to write about it, and may that be a part of actually bringing it into form as we have the collective conversation about what's possible. Positive images of the future. Fred Pollock, if I recall, wrote a book about having positive images that we can work towards because in the day-to-day life, whether it's spiritual practice or not, we're making thousands of decisions, and those decisions add up to the reality that we experience. So if we have an inspiring vision, then we can actually create it. And then there was a quote from, I believe, the Old Testament, where there is no vision, the people perish. So what we need now is vision. And fortunately, there are quite a few visionaries about and um, you know, having conversations with you and others. Uh, so thank you for your work and certainly thank them as well. How old are you now? 47. Okay. It's funny that you mentioned 47 because I heard you in some talk and you were talking about what might happen in such and such a year. And you thought, well, let's see, I think I'll be about uh, 147 by then. So I'll be pretty old. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. He actually thinks he's going to be alive when he's 147, which is possible. There are no examples of it now that we know of, unless you believe some of these books about yogis who lived a long time. But do you think that the changes afoot will be such that you and I were talking about Jean Houston before we started, and you said that her telomeres are not shortening. Telomeres are these little things on the ends of, what is that, on the ends of chromosomes or something that they shorten as we age. So do you think that the times are such that people will sort of begin to live Old Testament long lifetimes within the, the next hundred years or so? I do, and at the same time, I wouldn't suggest that we grasp for that possibility. That possibility will emerge out of spiritual realization and remembering who and what we truly are. And then actually the need to live longer and the fear of death, all of that evaporates. And then we might, if we have a, if we have a reason to be here for 147 years, fantastic. I have a feeling that that will be pretty common. We also have this potential overpopulation issue. My sense is it's gonna be okay. And I have had in meditation experiences of seeing the world in the 2300s and the 2100s. And that episode you're referring to, I got was, uh, I think, 2117 or thereabouts. And um, it was a very clear impression. And I have a sense that I might be there for yeah. that. But maybe I'll be there in a different form. Yeah, yeah. And does it even really matter? You know, I'm very relaxed about this form. And it's interesting. I, I wasn't planning to go here. But just in recent weeks, I've had the sense that... Um, and maybe it's an experiment, but I've had the sense that it would be good for me to live as if the end of the year is the end of this form. So forget 147 years, maybe it's just 47 years. Just live that way and see what it's like, see what that brings. And I am finding that, um, oh gosh, the appreciation of life has increased and the appreciation of the little things and appreciation of people and my connections. At the same time, I'm not making plans beyond the end of the year, really. I know I mentioned the February retreat, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Maybe I'll still be here. <laughs> uh, but to live as if I won't, that's really interesting. And it relates to dying before we die. Yeah. Maybe that's really what's happening is I'm, I'm consciously exploring dying before the physical vehicle passes away. 
So I'll report back on how that goes. Both Shankara and Amma and probably other spiritual teachers have said that you should leave each day as if it will be your last or each moment. Amma says you should be like a bird perched on a branch that could break at any time. That's not to be morbid or scared or anything like that, but it enables you to prioritize your activities. Here's a question from Jean in Canada. She asks, you are on a ship moving all your belongings, carrying a bag of your favorite books. You are in an unfortunate accident and the ship starts to sink. You're about to be on a deserted island for many years. You have only time to grab one of the books and it will be your only companion. What book do you grab and why? Oh, that's such a great question. Not too long ago, I I wrote about my top 10 most influential favorite books. And the number one book at that time was God Speaks, which it appears you have on the shelf. Great. Yeah, Mare Baba, this is a very significant book. I would say I would I would stick with it. There's no book that I would say is my Bible in the sense that I see it as the absolute truth or something that um, is my my path, definitely. I feel that this life has been a synthesis of many paths, which itself creates a new path. But I have to offer profound respect for uh, Baba and those who helped to realize this book. It includes a number of uh, charts of consciousness and the journey of the soul and the, the journeys of God and the, the levels of realization along the way in terms of planes of existence and then ultimately the reality of existence. And it's so lucid. So even though I have a different cosmology that has emerged through my work and my own mapping, I have different maps, I still feel very connected with Baba's cosmology. I see it as a different view. So if there were a giant diamond here with many, many facets, infinitely many facets, God Speaks presents more clearly than any other book I've ever encountered a very complete physical and metaphysical cosmology. It itself is a synthesis of science and spirituality that explains evolution in a certain way. My own work is a different facet on the very same diamond. So by uh, now I'm seeing why, why this is still the answer to your question. Thank you, Gene. By having two facets, two examples of ultra coherent cosmology, some third deeper possibility opens up. So I've got the one book in me and the other book that seems to be external, which is God Speaks, which I will take to the island. And then we'll see what happens as I have many hours to contemplate. <laughs> cool. Hopefully you, didn't, you weren't forced to choose between a book and some food. There's plenty of food on this island, by the way. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, I haven't mastered breatharianism. Another interesting possibility of consciousness. Yeah. All right. As a final topic, let's talk a little bit about spiritual integrity. I know you've become oh, a member of the yes. Association for Spiritual Integrity, which is spiritual-integrity.org. It's important. And you gave a talk at Science and Non-Duality in 2017, which I attended, and it influenced me. It certainly made an impression. You were in my talk then? And one you, thing you attended that? Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, I was, I was there. Uh, I was somewhere. Uh, did we actually room. meet? I don't know if we met. I think maybe Jude, who was also there that year, right. said, hey, you two should talk. And that was the extent oh, of it. Well, now you we're had talking. A busy Thank you, Jude. And I, was, <laughs> I was there for the first time. But one of the things that you said is we're all works in progress. Spiritual teachers, realized beings, I would even add avatars, maybe God, all works in progress. Was it Teresa of Avila who said God seems to be on a journey? Yeah, it appears that God himself is on that. the journey, is what she said. So yes, work in progress. And that means 
there's a lot of room to be humble and to practice and be aware of the various possibilities of integrity and misalignment. So, okay, to be more specific, in the role of a spiritual teacher, one has a lot of power, potentially, and traditionally that's been the case. And people who are taking your word for it because they don't yet have their own sourcing ability, if a teacher is tuned in in that way and can receive wisdom for the benefit of the student, then that's wonderful. Ideally, however, the student would be able to do that for themselves. And over time, when that capacity is cultivated, I would say that's that's a really excellent teacher who can work with the student to cultivate their own knowing so that they're not dependent upon the teacher. But there are instances where that doesn't happen. And maybe the wisdom that's coming through the teacher isn't spot on for the student, or maybe the teacher doesn't train that ability to become independent, spiritually independent. For whatever reason, I've heard of uh, stories of spiritual teachers wanting to hold on to disciples. I mean, clearly that's problematic. That's grasping, in fact. It's not an awakened pattern of behavior. So when we're in a community of practitioners and teachers who are committed to holding one another accountable to the highest possibilities of spiritual teaching and empowerment for the students, then it's a better outcome for all of us. And this runs a bit in contradiction to the idea of the the spiritual teacher who is the, the realized absolute in form and beyond question, beyond reproach, and also not in relationship with other people and with life itself by virtue of having removed themselves to that level of exaltation. So there are great downsides and pitfalls uh, when we're not in intimate relationship with, this is a funny word to use, with life and, uh, and others who are traveling the same path. But when we are practicing together, a greater wisdom flourishes and there will be far fewer stories of, um, oh gosh, you know, financial impropriety, sexual impropriety, whatever it might be. You know, there's been quite a lot of that over the years. I'm so appreciative that ASI or the Association for Spiritual Integrity is is seeking to bring actually more consciousness to the discipline of spirituality and spiritual teaching. Yeah, that's what it's trying to do. It's not trying to wield some kind of authority over anybody because we don't have any authority and wouldn't really want it. It's the peer community <laughs> yeah, that drew me. Exactly. And actually, as much as the integrity piece, being sometimes in the role of teacher, although I don't use that word typically, I'm a little bit surprised that more teachers don't work together and collaborate and deepen together and practice together. It seems like a very isolated discipline. So I feel that ASI has great potential to evolve the state of the art in terms of spiritual teaching by collectivizing it a bit. And it has been said, for instance, by Thich Nhat Hanh, that the next Buddha will be or may be a collective. So we need to learn how to be a spiritually awakened collective, not only the lone realizer with followers, but actually a community of realized ones makes a greater one. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do, really. People can still be independent. It's not like they're going to have to join some kind of guild or something and everybody does this. It's not the board. No, it's not like that. <laughs> um, but if there's a loose affiliation where you can get constructive criticism and feedback from your peers, and if you're in need of help or you begin to go off the rails or something, there can be a friend who might help you or friends who, who you know might help keep you on track or something then that would be good. It would perhaps diminish some of these disasters that keep happening in the spiritual field. Oh, yeah. Well, and if you're in relationship with other people, 
<laughs> intimate or otherwise, then um, you catch the early warning signs and it doesn't become a big thing and it doesn't need to become a drama. It's just like, oh, I notice you know, there's a bit of a blind spot. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. Kind of like being in a, a marriage or a close relationship where without that, without any kind of feedback or mirror from another person, you can get far off. But if you're in a relationship with somebody who has a good sensible head on their shoulders, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, that feedback can be extremely valuable and good for your evolution. Yes. Well, I think it was Ramdas who said, we're all walking each other home. So whether we're spiritual teachers, spiritual practitioners, or not even all that spiritual, when we're connected and mirroring one another, which tends to happen, we're learning, we're growing, we are awakening more slowly or more quickly. And there's, there is a kind of integrity to it. So there's integrity in the sense of um, behaving in a good way that is loving and, and supportive of the growth of others and doesn't do harm. So there's that kind of integrity. And then there's integrity as wholeness, which is, I think, what I'm feeling as much and the possibility of a greater whole emerging from coming together with a real grounded accountability as part of the foundation. So again, thank you for founding, co-founding ASI. And um, I hope that many people will join. And I know that there are plans to expand scope to include more folks as well. And organizations are starting to join now too. We have three organizations on board who have joined as an organization. I just want to throw in one of my favorite quotes here before we end, which is from Padmasambhava, the ancient Buddhist teacher. He said, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So here's this great saint that is revered as being really one of the highest. And yet he's saying, hey, I could screw up. I have to really be on my toes. Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda's teacher, said that the warrior has time only for his impeccability. Yes. And again, that's living every moment as a spiritual practice. And when we live consciously, we're actually living in a way that doesn't create karma in the sense of uh, unfinished business that then circles back. So to live consciously is a moment to moment practice. Our attention has to be as fine as a grain of barley flour and perhaps finer still. Kind of like riding a bicycle, you know, you, it becomes second nature, but you could always crash if you're inattentive. That's right. So many ways life is keeping us conscious. Well, it's really been great, Jeff. I've really enjoyed mind melding with you like this. It's Thank you, gotten, a, gotten a lot more of my brain cells firing. Let me just show you your website on the screen here. First of all, jeffvandekloot.com, right? Yes. And I will link to that from your page on batgap.com and people can sort of read your blog and do various other things that you have. Now you have some kind of course coming up called Homecoming, a seven week adventure of awakening, October through December 2021. What's that going to involve? One of the collaborations with other spiritual teachers that I'm involved in is called Enlightening Journeys, Enlightening Journeys and Expeditions. It's the full and somewhat long name. And we have been offering online journeys, which are indeed adventures of awakening. We've had two so far, and this is the third, homecoming. And this will be the deepest dive yet into the ground of being and our deepest nature, really, and meeting people where we are on the journey. So it's not only for advanced practitioners. It would be very beneficial even for advanced practitioners, but anyone who feels called to explore more of your nature and find the deeper essence of your being. And I would say that it's a heart essence. It is a loving presence 
that we tap into together when we come on these journeys. So there's a sense of community that's very strong of people supporting one another with a lot of joy. Now, some of the themes of homecoming are non-duality and oneness and what happens when we really engage in a practical way with uh, these deeper truths. So over the course of seven weeks, we'll be doing that. We'll be practicing non-duality, applying non-duality in our daily lives, living every moment as a loving presence that brings healing and further awakening to the world, actually being the solution to the various problems that we've identified in this conversation, the various challenges that humanity faces. So there's an intention with homecoming to come home to ourselves and also to come home together to a more thriving sense of community and living on this planet, one with nature and um, one with our brothers and sisters. And, you know, it sounds like maybe that could be some distant possibility. Again, the future is already here if we say yes to it. And that's what we'll be doing. So homecoming, check it out on my site or enlighteningjourneys.com. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you. Good. Well, thanks. And again, I'll be linking to this stuff from Jeff's page on batgap.com. So if you happen to be driving while you're listening to this or something, then when you get home, you could just go to BatGap and look up Jeff's page and follow the links to these things. Thanks again, Jeff. It's really been great getting to know you better. And I'm sure that we'll have more interactions in the future, either in person or online or whatever. Now that you mentioned it, I remember meeting you at Sand and Jude Curvon introducing us. I'd totally forgotten about that, but I'm glad that we finally got yeah. to know each other better. It's interesting. At the time, I felt there was a resonance, but it was of the down the road variety. Yeah. So it's delightful to have this. It was only like 21.3% at that point. Now it's like up to 100%. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of further exploration so that I could have good stuff to talk about today. Yeah, well, and Rick, you have. I'm really grateful. Really grateful to you and um, to this lineage of Buddha at the gas pump. I'm glad to be part of that. And if there's any way I can support you or your community going forward, I would love to do that. Okay, so thanks. thanks again. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do this and to talk to people like you. Next week, I'm going to be talking to a lady named Nancy Rines, who had a serious accident where a car hit her with her bicycle and on her bicycle. And she went under the car and dragged 50 feet and had this profound near-death experience. Following interview after that will be Lynn Twist, who wrote a book called The Soul of Money. You may know Lynn, Jeff. And after that, a friend of mine named Tom Christofiak, who has written a book called Tempted to Believe, all about why we believe what we believe and whether or not we should. So I'm looking forward to all those. And if you'd like to tune in to what's planned, go to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, where we list the upcoming interviews. So thanks for listening or watching, and we will see you for the next one.